Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In season three, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest on resilience is retired clinical psychologist and author, Dr. John Tholen. As John states, what the research shows is that people who act as though they're self-disciplined actually have found a good strategy that's more important than any personal strength. Psychologists have been able to teach children who didn't show self-discipline, who didn't show an ability to delay gratification, have been able to teach them strategies that allow them to do that, and they acquire that knowledge. Oh yeah, I can do that. Oh yeah, I found now the strategy. And it changes everything. Golden, I'm a, a retired psychologist, cognitive psychologist. I practiced for more than 40 years. After seven years of training, uh, I have a PhD in psychology from the University of Miami and uh, also a master's degree in public health from UCLA. You and I connected because you contributed to my interview series, Rising Through Resilience, How to Be Resilient During Turbulent Times with Authority Magazine. Um, what I found really key is the fact that you mentioned something called focus positivity, this idea of using a strategy when it comes to that. Could you expound a little more on that? Sure. Uh, focus positivity, which is the name of my book too, Focus Positivity, The Path to Success and Peace of Mind, uh, is a strategy for uh, managing our negative emotions. Our, um, you know, it, it seems as though our emotions and motivations are reactions to what happens to us in life. But actually, they're instead a response to our self-talk, the, the language that goes around in our minds. Uh, and so if we delve into that area by focusing on what the thoughts are in our minds, we can actually get some control over our motivations and our, our feelings. And that's, that's the, and the focus positivity strategy is the most efficient way to do that. So take us back a little bit to your background. When you first began this endeavor, what were some of the hurdles or some of the, um, you know, things that you had to come across in order to get to where you were or are? Well, you know, like everyone, uh, I've encountered a number of challenges uh, in my career. You know, we we often don't go a planned route in our careers. You know, things just happen and we go with it. You know, and so I didn't. I never even knew what um, 
you know, that there was a field of disability psychology, but somehow I got connected to it through a, through a patient that I was seeing in a weight loss program. And that became my, my practice was a, it was a disability psychology practice. And uh, it became a specialty. And actually in 2008, I wrote a, my first book, which was called Winning the Disability Challenge, uh, which was specifically about how to cope with having become disabled. Uh, and then I continued practicing uh, uh, until four years ago. And during that time, I collected thousands of positive messages I, I recorded for patients and uh, to try to help them to focus on a more functional thought, a thought that, that doesn't uh, distress us or inhibit us, that's also balanced and reasonable to, to replace the ones that are causing our problems. So I collected all those thoughts, uh, categorized them, uh, to, uh, you know, put together this uh, focus positivity uh, strategy that I stumbled on during the course of my my training and career, and um, put it into a book that I tried to present just the essentials and make it as accessible as possible to anyone. Uh, and that's why I felt it was uh, worth pursuing and publishing the book. Yeah, in the article, you mentioned that at 32, you made the best decision of your life by marrying Sandy uh, and yes. how subsequently you have two sons as a result. How has that transformed your life that moment? Well, I, I personally uh, find greater enjoyment in my relationship with my wife and my sons and my grandchildren and my friends than in any other area of my life. Uh, you know, I, I really think that that area of life, relationships, gives us a great opportunity for satisfaction. And uh, I've been very fortunate uh, and I am trying just, you know, living it one day at a time and enjoying it as much as I can. You know, you speak, you spoke so eloquently about two occasions during your business where your psychological services and recently being disabled was threatened by legislative or insurance coverage changes. With the, such a complex world that we all live in now, do you find some uh, sentiments that are echoed um, in, the, in those challenges happening in the world right now? Well, you know, we, we all find ourselves confronted with problems and challenges. That's, that's just the nature of life. And we, we try to do our best, you know, we all, for the most part, everybody is just trying to do the thing that seems best at the moment. And uh, so when, when legislation threatened my disability practice on two different occasions, uh, for the first time, I thought, well, I'm going to have to develop a general psychology practice. So I moved my office into a community with, uh, you know, where, where there'd be a lot of patients nearby who could walk to my office. And then what happened was a lot of the disability practices were folded because of this new legislation, but I continued to get plenty of referrals. So I didn't even have to change my practice much. And then the next time it happened, I thought, well, I better do something different. Maybe this is the opportunity for me to, to write my book. And that's when I wrote my first book. And that then led to more disability practices going out of business. But my book made me more prominent in the field. I got more referrals than ever. So my practice actually grew, even though the legislation was hurting those kind of practices in general. So all we can do is you know, take the logic, the step that seems most logical. We never quite know how things are going to work out. But we take, try to take the, the next logical, what seems the next logical step forward. 
and then we have we deal with whatever happens. Yeah, in the piece you also mentioned this idea of right brain motivations versus left brain concerns, and how to create that sense of family. Um, I'm just sort of curious. Can you flesh out a little bit more about that? Because I found that perspective so unique. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's a psychiatrist, a neuropsychiatrist, and literature professor named Ian McGilchrist, and he's written a, a very complex and revealing book uh, on the difference between the, our, the right side of our brain and the left side of our brain. And uh, what he, what he, what the research shows is that the all of all of our information about the world comes into the right side. But the right side is silent because all of our language is on the left side. So the right side tra transmits the information to the left side of our brain, which then forms a virtual world, a model of how things seem to be. And the left side is focused on helping us survive, on competing, on getting food, on staying alive. The right, and it has all the language. So the left side basically is about uh, manipulating our world with our language to for our survival. The right side is the only part of our brain that uh, understands context, understands relationships, understands uh, spirituality, understands love, understands artistic expression. And, uh, you know, there's obviously got to be a balance. Both sides are critically important. You can't live without you know, focusing on survival, but we don't want to just be about survival because that's a pretty, that's like a robotic kind of life. You know, a robot could do that just as well. We're, we're not robots. We're, you know, we have this other side of ourselves and the other side is what makes life worth living, what makes survival worthwhile. Uh, and so I encourage people to look to the left, to the right uh, hemisphere of the brain motives things like uh, becoming involved in community organizations, in volunteer efforts, in faith-based activities, in uh, artistic expression, uh, and then like I'm doing, focusing on family and friends, you know, my relationships mm. you know, as a way are, of making life meaningful, more meaningful. None of us are able to get to where we are unless we had some help along the way. And I know you mentioned Bernie Rappaport as being someone who really demonstrated or showed you that you really need to learn the other person's goals or interests. Um, what kind of impact did he have on your life? Well, Bernie, Bernie was a very interesting uh, person. He, I, I don't know if he's still with us or not. I haven't spoken to him in years. Uh, he was a psychiatrist who was the head of the Orange County Mental Health Department. Uh, I was one of his assistants when I was still training in psychology before I, before I had gotten my license. And uh, he was, a, a, he was, he treated me uh, like an equal for one thing. You know, he would, he, he, we, he, I, he, he would walk every day from the mental health office down the street to his brokerage office. He'd take me with him. <laughs> We'd just talk as he'd go back and forth. But he, he gave me a lot of good advice. You know, he, he, he said that when you're dealing with people uh, the way you make the best relationship with them is to let them know that you're on board with their goals. You want to help them accomplish what it is that, that they want. Uh, and that's the best way to supervise people, the best way to treat patients, the best way to deal with supervisors, even. You know, I, 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 my, your goals are my goals. 
and it works in relationships too. I, I had a, this epiphany when my wife and I were on a trip to, to uh, uh, Denver a, a few years ago. And I said, you know what? What's good for you is good for me. <laughs> she I said, oh yeah, that's, that's kind of true. You know, if it's good for you, it's good for me. If you're in a relationship, that's a, that's a good motto. <laughs> So I wanted to come back to the focus of today's conversation about resilience. How do you define resilience, John? Uh, resilience, obviously, it it's the ability to do well again after you encounter an obstacle in life, a major challenge. But many people make the mistake of thinking that they don't have it. <laughs> You know, like that it's something you either have or you don't have, like mm. like self-discipline. Every Almost everybody thinks they either have it or they don't have it. But really what the research shows is that people who act in a way that looks as though they're self-disciplined actually have found a good strategy, that it's really strategy that's more important than any personal strength. Uh, we're all basically... You know, we're all humans, we all have weaknesses, we all have self-doubts. The, the key to finding success is to find good strategies. And, you know, psychologists have been able to teach children who didn't show self-discipline, who didn't show an ability to delay gratification, have been able to teach them strategies that allowed them to do that. And then they acquire that knowledge. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I. Oh yeah, I've, I found now I have the strategy. I can do that, and and it changes everything. It can change everything. So what happens? They've mon they've you know monitored these children over years, and the ones that that didn't show uh, self discipline and were not taught it did much worse than the kids who thought they had it and the kids who thought they didn't have it but were taught it. So what it shows is that we can all learn how to be, appear self disciplined how to appear resilient. And it, and that's by finding a good, finding and adopting a good strategy that allows us to succeed. Mm. There was a sentiment you echoed that I, I just loved about this idea of the greatest power we have is to change how we feel and what we do. How have you found in your work that that was true? Well, you know, what, the one thing that we have the power to control is our attention. Okay. We can make the decision to attend to what you're saying, what I'm saying, the thought that's you know reverberating in my mind, what's going on on the news. We can decide what to pay attention to. And, be, and that gives us the power to shift our attention away from a thought that's distressing us, or inhibiting us unnecessarily, and onto a thought that's more likely to uh, inspire hope and to motivate self-assertion. And that gives us the power to change everything. You know, well, not everything, but <laughs> change a lot, to make big changes by shifting our attention. You know, obviously we, we are creatures of habit and our attention is gonna go back. You know, you're not gonna just go like that and suddenly be always focused attention if you're in the habit of focusing on the negative which many of us are I mean, it's not too surprising because evolution depended on us being able to focus on the negative because we had to save ourselves <laughs> we had to protect ourselves so it's not surprising that we tend to focus on the negative but 
the ability to shift our attention to the positive is something we can gradually develop when we have a strategy. That's what the focus positivity strategy is. It's a strategy for learning to shift our attention more to the positive. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. So if you keep practicing that strategy, eventually it becomes kind of automatic. You know, our, our automatic thoughts, the ideas that pop spontaneously into our minds are determined by a complex interaction between our inherited temperament and uh, the way that life is treated us, our exposure to experience. Uh, and when that interplay has left us cynical about life or excessively self-critical, our, our automatic thoughts tend to be negative, tend to be dysfunctional. They work against us. They inhibit us, they cause distress without inspiring any constructive action. So the, uh, the goal of focused positivity strategy is to recognize those thoughts and then find balanced and reasonable alternatives because those dysfunctional thoughts are almost always incomplete, uh, unreasonable, and often completely wrong. And there are just as good or better thoughts out there that are, are positive. And so if we get ourselves into the habit of looking for those, we, we can uh, increase our peace of mind and we can have more uh, success in life because we won't be so inhibited about pursuing reasonable risks. You have a four-step focused positivity strategy. Can you flesh that out a little more? Yeah, the, well, the first step is uh, mindfulness. Okay, mindfulness is a term that's usually associated with uh, meditation, achieving a, a relaxed state of mind. But mindfulness just means being aware of what's going on in our bodies and our minds at the current moment. So we can't change anything if we're not aware of it. So mindfulness is about looking at what the thoughts are that are going through our through our minds. And when we're when, and when we're upset, when we're feeling inhibited, the goal is to look. Well, what are the thoughts here? What are the thoughts that are, that are causing that are leading to these feelings? And once you identify one of those thoughts that's related to those feelings, then you can then the, the next step is to start looking for alternatives, looking for balanced, reasonable alternatives more likely to inspire hope and, and motivate us toward constructive action. Then the goal is to just consistently shift our attention as much as possible from the dysfunctional thought back to the functional one, the one that works for us, that motivates us. And, you know, it, it's so interesting because uh, we know that we want to pay as little attention as possible to the dysfunctional thought. So I encourage in the book uh, that, that dysfunctional thoughts, if we're going to record them, and sometimes we need to record them to be able to develop the alternative, but we want to record them in a way that we can get rid of them quickly because we don't want to, we don't want to accidentally stumble on them. If we're accidentally stumbling on something, let's stumble on the positive, the functional thought, the, the one that works for us. So I encourage people, like in, in the book, I encourage people, uh, and this is the hardest part about acquiring the whole strategy, it does require keeping a record, uh, just a minimal record, probably five minutes a day, keeping a, a record. Uh, and when you're recording the dysfunctional thoughts, I encourage people to record it at the, at the back of your journal or in a separate uh, file or something where you won't have to see it. Because once you've identified 
the functional thoughts, you, you want to, you don't want to look at the dysfunctional ones again. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I asked a curious question uh, in the article about resilience and courage. Do you see them as one and the same or different? Well, I, I see them as similar, and I think that they're mostly illusions. Mm. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the, re the research on courage, I, I'm, I'm a little, I mean, courage is not a well-defined term. It kind of has a different meaning for different people. Uh, but when you're talking about, uh, th there has been some research on people who do courageous acts, uh, selfless, courageous acts, like running into a burning building to save someone they don't know, or diving through the ice to save a stranger who's out in the middle of a frozen lake. Uh, and what they've discovered about those people is <laughs> that they did it because they didn't stop to think. They're they were impulsive. Mm. They acted on impulse without thinking. That anytime, that virtually um, anytime someone stops to think about consequences, they don't take those kind of risks uh, because it's not intelligent to take that kind of risk. It doesn't make sense unless that's a person that you can't live without, that's vitally important to you, or that it's your. You can't live if you don't do this. I can't face anything. And that kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't make sense to take this kind of acts. And the people that look courageous are really people who are impulsive and don't stop to think. Uh, so really, it's kind of an illusion that that courage is often based on an illusion. And resilience and self-discipline are are similar in that they're based on an illusion that uh, there's some special quality that a person has or doesn't have that allows them to show that kind of behavior. And, but it's they're really things that people can learn. You, you had mentioned that three key historical figures, uh, George Washington, Mohandas Gandhi, and Sidney Poitier, um, are examples to you of, of resilience. Why? Well, they all had to uh, overcome a lot of failures and disappointments and uh, a lot of antic antagonism to become successful. I mean, uh, Sidney Poitier became the top grossing movie star in an era where people of color were pretty much pushed backstage or out of the building altogether. Uh, um, Gandhi, uh, you know, he, he I, I, I'm recalling from the movie, uh, he started off as an attorney in South Africa and didn't even realize that he was going to be the object of discrimination, that the white people in South Africa thought of him as a person of color and they wouldn't it wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then, you know, then he had to face all the, the, the conflicts that were going on in India at the time. Uh, and he managed through, and then he managed to do something that probably is the greatest feat in the history of humankind. He managed to separate India from the British Empire without a war, without violence. It's like absolutely amazing that he was able to do that. And then, of course, he got assassinated for it by a, a radical person, you know, who, who had a bizarre, you know, extreme belief. Uh, you know, <laughs> my book is is right now up for the uh, Eric Hoffer Award. Uh, it's a book. Uh, I mean, I, I have no idea what, where it is or if it's going to get an award or not. But Eric Hoffer wrote this book called The True Believer that impressed me very much when I was in college. And it's about how most of the damage that's done in the world 
is by these by true believers who have this absolute belief in something and they don't really they're not open to looking at uh any anything else you know they're not open to considering that their 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 idea might be wrong so you know it's it's obviously best for us to try to have an open mind oh, openness is a, a a key ingredient to uh being success because without openness we can't make adjustments we don't we can't we can't uh change john you spoke so candidly in the article about being born with a deformity uh, on your foot how has that yes. experience changed you as a person well it certainly helped to keep me humble <laughs> uh you know i didn't even remember this but my sister my older sister told me that i was uh very upset by being teased by other kids. I don't remember that at all. I have no memory for being teased at all. I do know that I always put that sock and shoe on first. I, I, I cover it up, I hide it as much as I can, you know. I think that's probably just a natural reaction. Uh, but, uh, you know, fortunately, it, it didn't uh, affect my physical capacity much. I don't have any problem walking. I even ran a marathon. So that, it, it, for that, I'm fortunate that way, uh, but it, it, does, it does certainly give me, you know, when we have something wrong with us, uh, when we see our weaknesses, it helps us identify with, with other people because everybody's got weaknesses. Everybody's got something wrong with them. Everybody's got, has flaws. And they're often the way we connect to other people. You know, I mean, some of the strongest bonds are formed with the other people who have the same problem we have. You know, I mean, that's that's what happens in groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and any kind of self-help group that you go to, uh, you know, you're going to, here's people like me, you know, they have, they're having this, they're facing the same challenges I am. And that increases our, our the likelihood that we're going to form a strong bond. So John, what are your five steps that someone can can do and, and be and act to become more resilient in their lives? Well, the first one is to focus on strategy, okay? to focus on strategy. I recognize that being resilient doesn't depend on some quality, some trait that you might have or not have, okay? that it's more about finding and adopting a good strategy. Uh, this, then the second is, for, for, from my point of view, is, fo is focus positivity strategy, because that's the way we can change our feelings and our motivations uh, by adopting focus positivity strategy. Uh, so it's you know being mindful of the thoughts uh, that are affecting our self-talk, uh, looking for alternatives uh, that are balanced, reasonable, and and inspiring, um, and then shifting our attention to those every time they go. Every time we find ourselves focusing on those adverse thoughts, shift our attention, pull out the, the positive thought and review it and, and go, oh, yeah, this is this is at least equally valid as that one, you know, and this one makes me feel better. <laughs> the truth is that we really don't know uh, what, what's going to happen. We don't under, we're not capable of understanding all the factors that affect us. Uh, so a lot of what goes on in our lives is kind of illusory, you know? So, it, it, you know, we may believe this thing, but who knows if it's true? 
Well, if this other belief, which we don't know if it's true either, is just, it makes us feel better, that's a better one to focus on. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with remaining humble, that your, your ideas may be wrong. They may be not the best ideas. Hmm. Wonderful. So I would like to transition into what I call the brainstorming um, section here. You know, in the article, I asked a very curious question about what if there was a movement, what would that movement be? And your idea was really about shaping strategies focused on positivity, right? The mindful thoughts, the identifying of dysfunction, and the alternative ideas for hope and action. I just really wanted to just have a very candid conversation in and around that idea. Um, where do you think uh, right now, the world that we live in with so much complexity, that there could be ways to increase that focused positivity? Yeah. Well, you know, we all have very limited ability to control what goes on in the world. Uh, mostly we can focus on what we have control over. You know, that focus positivity is, is really about uh, paying attention to what you have, what each of us has control over, which is where we focus our attention. So, you know, if there's a, there's this horrible war going on, we're bombarded with, with distressing war news, uh, you know, sometimes it's a good idea to limit that, our attention on that, because it makes you feel helpless. Helplessness and hopelessness don't help anyone. Uh, you know, so the goal is to, to try to refocus our attention on something where we have some ability to control, we have some power. Where do we have power? Well, maybe there's some kind of donation we can make. Maybe there's a letter we can write. Maybe there's... Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, it doesn't make any sense for 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 me to sign up to go fight in the war. They wouldn't want me anyway. <laughs> but uh, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to put ourselves at risk in that way. Uh, but it, you know, I, what I can do is I can write a, an article that maybe it will help others deal with the war news better. Uh, you know, they're they're it's always possible to find some way to think about things that's going to be less distressing. And with respect to the war, I mean, it does appear now that maybe things are beginning to wind down, you know, maybe, maybe there's going to be some kind of truce or maybe there's going to be a negotiated settlement of some kind. I mean, it, it's a horrible situation, but it looks like maybe we're beginning to come out of it, just like we're coming out of we seem to be coming out of this pandemic, you know. Uh, things may start to get a little bit more normal. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a positive thought. That's a functional thought. Uh, and then what can I do? Well, I can try to take care of myself and the people that I care about. You know, that for most of it, that's about as much as we can do. We're, very few of us have any ability to control world events. Yeah. Even no, the people that, are, that do, don't seem to be able to do anything. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I often say, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm a stage three cancer survivor. And I often tell people that it's really about owning your personal power to some degree. Like you can obviously defer to the doctor. They have their expertise and you're under their care. But a lot of healing takes place in the home. A lot of healing takes place outside of the clinic, outside of everything else that you know you need to do for your particular let's say medical issue um mm -hmm. and i think personal responsibility is another key factor and so when you mentioned this in the article really what 
sort of popped into my mind was just remembering. So I had, I was in the hospital for two weeks. Uh, my last three days before I left, uh, I was um, given my first round of chemo and I had four roommates. And one of them in particular was very glaringly, um, there's something, he just was complaining all the time. He would be yelling and screaming and complaining. And I said to him one night, I said to him, I said, listen, like, what are you rushing home? Cause he wanted to leave. He, he had to do like, he had like radiation appointments. He wanted to leave. I said, what are you rushing home for? Do you have like a family? He goes, no, I just have a dog. And, uh, and I'm like, but you're here for healing. Like I, none of us want to be here, but you're here for healing. So why don't you at least try to center yourself and be calm in yourself? And of course, to me, it made sense. Right. But then I spoke to a friend about it when he was outside of the room and she's like, you don't get it. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, he's scared because he's going to die. And even though you're handling it the way you're handling it, he's coming from a different perspective. And so I bring this to this conversation because it's easy to sell someone to be positive, but when you don't know their history, when you don't know their traumas, when you don't know how they see and view life, it's very difficult. Um, and so I just really wanted to just have this conversation to just flesh out how can that um, be um, strengthened or how can that be emphasized? And really, I often tell people is you have to come back to self because self will allow you to get a new uh, perspective and clarity on things. Yeah. Well, you know, it's also important to understand that everybody has their own perspective on everything. And very rarely are we going to change somebody else's perspective. Uh, and it's probably counterproductive to even try. Uh, you know, what the states have shown, you know, with this political divisiveness that we have in our country now, you know, people are having these huge arguments and calling each other idiots. And, <laughs> and but the only thing that's been shown to actually help to lead to less divisiveness is to find some common ground, to, to find a way to talk about the ways we're alike rather than the ways we're different. Uh, because we're all way more alike than we are different. <laughs> and and so the, the goal is to focus on on where we where we're the you know where where we have commonality uh, how we can agree with each other how we can understand each other you know even asking somebody who has completely different viewpoint uh, how did how did you how did you come to think this well you know where, tell me tell me what what's happened in your life that led you to this point and then, and not criticizing and not not trying to argue against it just showing an interest in understanding how they got to their viewpoint. And then, you know, and then acknowledging that, oh yeah, I can see how, because the truth is that if you could see everything from that person's perspective, you would understand completely why they believe this. Uh, and so if we can, if we can capture that, that, that everybody has a reason for what they feel and what they do that makes sense to them, uh, then, you know, that makes everything understandable and forgivable. Yeah. Incl including, it, yeah, including yeah. ourselves, you know, including it goes for our own behavior. If you understand that everything that we do has an explanation that, you know, that really we're, we're, we're the, uh, you know, we're the result of a lot of different competing motivations and forces. And what we do is explainable and understandable and therefore forgivable. You know, we, that makes it, you know, that helps it, us to forgive ourselves for the mistakes we make. Yeah. I call it the Margaret Mead lens. You know, Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, she would go yes. in and she would not, she would just record 
and be a part of and not judge and not tell and just yeah. really view. And I really love that perspective. I try every day. <laughs> I try every yeah, day. Yeah, to to not to be judgmental. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the whole uh, essence of Buddhism is, right? Yeah. Is to accept without judgment, <laughs> yeah. to just uh, accept and, and, and try not to judge. Wonderful, John. Well, this was a fascinating conversation. Where can my listeners and audience find out more about you and you know, your book and, and the work? Well, the website is uh, focuspositivity.net, focuspositivity.net, and, and that will give you more information about me and about the book. Wonderful, John. Well, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Good. I did too. Thanks, Savio. Sure. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one coaching sessions, a subscription to my weekly newsletter, where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, where you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here's How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.